You're listening to a Day in the Life podcast brought to you by the International Myeloma Foundation. We hope this podcast will provide messages of hope and resilience to those in the myeloma community and beyond. Today, we are talking to Jim Bond, who many lovingly call the real James Bond. And like the fictional spy who's faced many trials in his life and come out alive and on the other side, Jim Bond continues to survive and thrive. Diagnosed with myeloma in 1992, Jim is a retired CPA, a husband to his loving wife, Kathleen, for more than 50 years, a father of two sons and a grandparent. To begin, Jim, I understand you were diagnosed in myeloma in 1992. What was the reason you decided, as you said, not to do your bucket list and fight myeloma, despite a prognosis of three years at the time? Let me start out by thanking Susie Novus, because back in 1992, when I was diagnosed, and it was at the end, it was stage three myeloma, a lot of involvement, bones, protein, the urine, all that stuff. Well, Kathleen, who's my superstar caregiver wife was great at finding information. And in those days, there was no internet. So she did it other ways. But she found out about the IMF through an oncologist in her hometown, our hometown of Akron, Ohio. We now live in the Cleveland area. But she found out from this oncologist in Akron, Ohio, about Susie and Brian Nova starting this IMF way back around the time I was diagnosed in 92. And I just want to upfront say the IMF has been very, very helpful in getting us to where we are. And I cannot thank Susie and her team, everybody associated with that, with your organization. It's just terrific. Now, in terms of getting diagnosed, I'm a guy who likes to ask a lot of questions. In fact, my living was being an auditor for a large CPA firm, and that's so I got paid to ask the right questions. So when I was diagnosed, we have two major cancer centers in our hometown of Cleveland. And the one I got diagnosed at, I happened to be there for a physical exam I happened to, I had to have for work. The young oncologist who diagnosed me, I said, Doctor, if you were me, what would you do? And he said, well, honestly, Jim, you press me for how long you're going to live, and I've told you, at most three years, if everything goes well. Now, remember, this was in 1992. This is not today. So he said, if I were you, I would give some serious thought to doing your bucket list. You're a young guy. I was in my early 40s. And he said, your kids are away at college. He said, you may not have a chance to do some of these things if you don't do them now. And I thanked him. And we went home, you know, that weekend. And like many listening to this, we're in pretty depressed state thinking about this awful, incurable, deadly blood disease. And we gave real thought to doing our bucket list and just throwing in the towel. And here's why we decided not to. I look back at my own life and realized I had another major setback physically. I was an aspiring high school baseball player, and I had dreams of being good enough to play at the Division One college level, and I was pursuing that dream. But in the way that dream was a, a fence pole that shattered my leg on catching a, a foul ball, and that ended any chance I had to play beyond the high school level. And it was crushing to me because I had set my sights on that. I realized looking back now at, in 92, that a lot of good things happened because of that injury, that setback medically. 
very bad prognosis, not nearly like cancer, but it was, hey, you're not going to you're not going to run again, you're not going to walk properly, and you're certainly not going to play the game again. And all that I I overcame. I did walk again, I did run again, and I did continue to play amateur summer baseball. So, I thought, okay, that was hard. There's a lot of work involved in that. It was not easy, and I didn't think I could do it at the beginning, but I did. So I thought, let's, I said, Kathleen, let's make myeloma the same way. Let's put it in the table as a big problem, and let's give it our best shot. So we decided we're going to go ahead and give this thing our best shot starting in 1992. And that, as you know, is now 29 years have ticked by, and, and today I'm in remission, and I am active, and I do, uh, try to do some form of exercise every day. So I'm very, very grateful that we didn't we didn't do our bucket list. But the the thing I've realized is through these experiences of sharing our story, actually that's become something that was never even intended to be on the bucket list, but it's become very rewarding experience for us. It seems like it went full circle for you from understanding what it's like to be resilient with the injury through baseball to living with myeloma and sharing your story and sharing that aspect of resilience in your life. Just to share with the listeners, I understand once you did start treatment, you underwent two autologous stem cell transplants in the first seven years of treatment, and then you had an allogeneic transplant at 10 years. How was that process for you? Yeah. Now, remember, again, it's back in time. My first aloe was in 93. They were viewed as experimental. Mm. My wife, Kathleen, had to, had to argue with the insurance company about whether to pay for them. <laughs> She's tough to win an argument from, and they did pay for it, but, it, but it was not the way it is today with an auto in terms of ease of doing them. And so uh, I did that one and got through it, the first one, and got almost six years of complete remission. Well, during that time, of course, we knew it was going to come back. We were told that and we expected that. I'd come out of remission and have to, have to do something. And with nothing else to do, in terms of fighting myeloma back in those dark ages, I started my campaign to do a second auto transplant. And the uh, transplant doctor here at University Hospitals of Cleveland, which has done all my transplants, he was skeptical. He said, Jim, really, I don't think you can do a second one because we used full body radiation on the first one, part of the protocol. And while it worked great, he said, uh, it gave you six years. But he said that lessens your chances to be able to harvest your own stem cells ever again. And I kept at him. I, you know, he didn't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I kept reminding him that was on my radar screen. And then the time came when the cancer came back and I was put on my full court press. And he was tired of telling me no. And he said, I'll tell you what, Jim, if you and your wife are willing to go up to the Mayo Clinic from your, our hometown here in Cleveland up to Rochester, Minnesota, and get a second opinion from one of their myeloma experts, the now departed Phil Gripe. And if he's okay with it, he thinks it'll work, then I'm okay with it. So we did. We made our first second opinion visit of a few more to come, but that was our first. And he assured me that, yeah, it would work. And he offered to have the Mayo do it, but he said, you've got a good team there at the University Hospitals. And you're in good hands there. So we had it done back at, in our hometown. And that's how I got the second auto. Now, that one, 
unfortunately, only lasted two years. And again, we didn't have the great drugs we have today for myeloma. In fact, they were just starting to try out thalidomide, and they were trying to get the dosage right. And it wasn't doing much good for me at all, so I was in trouble. My protein level was on the rise. I was getting bone involvement again, and my doctor, my transplant doctor, to his credit, said, let's test your two living sisters and see if either matches you. And one of the two, my oldest sister, Becky, did match. They harvested her stem cells. And the problem was I was ready to go. I had her, they had the cells ready to go. They said, Jim, lower those expectations. Your myeloma level is way too high to make this a reasonable chance of working. It's a long shot at best to work be strong enough to fight the high level of myeloma, but we've got nothing else. Are you okay in trying? I said, sure, I'm okay. So they did. They re-injected Becky's cells, and this is now at about the 10-year mark of my disease, and I got Becky's cells. And Kathleen likes to joke that I've been more fun to shop with <laughs> since I got those female bone marrow cells. <laughs> That's funny. She's a funny girl. So... I went through the quarantine period, staying at home, and I thought I was maybe feeling a little better when I got tested periodically. And they said, Jim, your myeloma is out of control. The level's still very high. While the transplant worked, you've got female cells, but it's not strong enough. And we cannot keep giving you blood transfusions every other day to keep you alive. That can't happen. So it was looking very bleak. And at that point, I understand the transplant doctor even suggested that you go to hospice. How did you face that news, and what did you do to advocate for your care at that time? Well, I did not take it well. I was told, we have nothing left for you to do, and you have to go to a hospice. And this is a very knowledgeable transplant doctor who knew myeloma. He knew his way around. And I said, but wait a minute, doctor. We're up to see Phil Gripe again. And I asked him what was on the horizon. And he said there's a trial of an experimental drug that was showing really good results on a preliminary basis for sick myeloma patients like you. And he advised me, said, Jim, if you get in trouble, I would try to get in that clinical trial. So I brought that up to my hometown doctor who said, yeah, I know all about that, but you can't get in. There are no openings anywhere in the country. And then he went on to say, you'd be wasting your time to even try. <laughs> well. I said, I said, I don't look at it as wasting my time. I'm sure going to try. And he was not happy about that. And he uh, thought I had to listen to him and go to a hospice. So he walked out of the room. I went back to my office, made a phone call to, to Dr. Gripe up at the Mayo Clinic who gave me some possible leads. And I placed those calls to other doctors. And I was praying for some doctor to call me back because my disease level is on the rise and I'm not feeling very good, really praying for someone to call me. That's remarkable. And you ended up getting on, a, I understand it was an experimental drug regimen, PS341 trial. How did you fare on that clinical trial? I did get, the name of the trial was PS341. It was an experimental drug. And the callback I got was on a Friday afternoon. It was from Paul Richardson, British accent doctor up, up at Dana-Farber. Now, Boston's 600 miles from our home. And he said, Jim, I only have two questions for you. I know a little bit about your case, but he said, 
how soon can you get up here? And I said, tomorrow. They said, well, that's Saturday. I said, yeah. He said, Monday, Monday would be fine. I said, okay, Monday. And he said, uh, are you willing to live up here for nine months with your wife relocating? And I said, nine months? Sure. Yes. <laughs> I just been told to go to a hospice. I'm thinking nine months is, is a gift from heaven. So I went home and started packing for nine months. But I thought it was suspicious that Kathleen looked like she was packing for a weekend. And I kind of shrugged and blew that off because I was really not feeling well at all, running a fever. But when my my younger sister dropped me off, Denise dropped me off at the airport, dropped us off, she gave me a hug goodbye that felt like she was hugging me goodbye forever. And that was a little emotional. But again, I kind of shrugged shrugged that off because I'm not thinking clearly. And we marched off to Boston, flew off to Boston. I don't know when this happened, but I understand you ended up becoming known as patient 007. How did that happen, and what, what is that reference to? I, I did. I did. It happened quickly. I mean, the first night we were in Boston, we checked into a hotel, and I went straight to bed. I couldn't eat. My legs were swollen up. I barely walked. Fever was up to 104, 105. And Kathleen was worried I might not make it through the night. So she called the emergency number at Dana-Farber for their myeloma emergency people. And the doctor who picked up the phone was doing duty that night, happened to be their leader, Dr. Ken Anderson. And he talked Kathleen through what to do to get me through the night and made her more comfortable that I'd make it in the next day. But before he hung up, he said, Mrs. Bond, did anyone tell you that when your husband was entered into our clinical trial, he was the seventh patient who entered that trial, that leg of the trial. And therefore, he was assigned patient 007. And he said, I think that's good karma. <laughs> well, <laughs> it was very good karma. <laughs> I, I went in after a hiccup or two. I started the PS341 treatments. And this is probably the most dramatic part of our story. Within two weeks, which for me, was four doses of this PS341 experimental drug. 99% of my monoclonal protein went into remission. Kathleen could see the difference. I could. I was starting to eat a little bit, feel a lot better. It was a miracle. It really does sound like a miracle. And the people at Dana-Farber, they had never seen a reaction like that. And the people at the development company who were trying to get this clinical trial to prove it was going to work. They had no other source of income. They had no source of income. They were shocked and, and delighted. And so it was a miracle. And that drug got me into complete remission within a matter of a month or two. And we stayed the entire nine-month period. And it, the drug is now called Velocade. Many of us have used it, and it's helped many of us. Not everybody, and few have had the reaction that I had. They cannot explain exactly why, but we had a lot of time up while we were out of town finishing the trial up in Boston, and, and I was thinking and said to Kathleen, you know, we were fortunate. We were very fortunate that we had the resources and could get up here and relocate, but what about people who can't cannot do that? How can they get out of town for something like a necessary clinical trial? She said, oh, Jim. She's been volunteering 
for the American Cancer Society for many years before I got cancer. And she's starting out at the door-to-door level. And she said, the American Cancer Society owns and operates over 30 of these Hope Lodges. That's where a patient and a caregiver stay for free while they're out of town being treated at a hospital for cancer. It's usually something they can't get in their hometown. So Kathleen wanted to raise the awareness to those because people like me didn't just hadn't known about them. And so she came up with this idea, and the idea was to have a bike ride, not a race, but just a ride from one end of our state up here in Cleveland down to the southern end in Cincinnati. Four days, 328 miles. And I said, Kathleen, that's a great idea, but neither of us cycle, <laughs> neither of us own a bike. <laughs> she said, not to worry. She, she figured all that out. And she did with the help of others at the American Cancer Society and her co-leader, who is a cyclist. It took them two years to get it planned out, all set. And in the meantime, I saw how hard she was working and I thought, I've got to do something to support her. So I went out and bought a bike and asked about training and followed the guidance of training. And I decided I was going to ride. So I was ready to go, ready ready to do my first Pan Ohio Hope ride. And a reporter asked our younger son before it was time to go. reporter said, Bob, do you think your dad will be able to make it four days over 300 miles? He doesn't doesn't really cycle. He's got some cancer issues. Well, I got home that night, listened to Bob on TV with his response. He said, I don't know if my dad's going to make it the whole way or not, but I'll say this about my dad. When my dad says he's going to do something, he'll do it. So I'm deeply touched by that. I'll never forget those words. I also felt (laughs) pressure that I had to make a reasonably good showing now that my son has said, yeah, (laughs) dad will do it. So I made it. I made it with the help of our oldest son, Jim, who is a cyclist, and our Bob's wife, Stacy, guiding me along the bike paths and country roads of Ohio. I made it all four days, all 328 miles. Wow. That was back in 07. And I did the same thing for 12 straight years. That's amazing. And I'm very proud of that. It's raised uh, over $11 million for the American Cancer Society, which funding and research played a key part in Velcade ever being discovered by the drug company. That's really amazing that you keep up with it and you've done that and you've raised so much money and your whole family is behind you. I think, unfortunately, things did take a difficult turn and you were diagnosed with a secondary cancer, leukemia. What was its likely cause and how have you coped with that diagnosis? Let me just quickly fill in on some treatments after Velcade. As we all know, it was going to come back, and the cancer did come back. But here's the important thing in my case. When the cancer came back, it was not raging. It was just kind of it was just peeking up its head. So that was a good thing. So I, I entered another couple of clinical trials because I became a strong, and I am a strong believer in clinical trials. And I also developed in there somewhere a plasma cytoma first of my career that popped up like a cyst in the back of my head and they had to use radiation to get rid of that. So that all went on. But like I said, I was in no danger. It was things they could control. Then you mentioned leukemia. That was the blockbuster side effect. In 2012, we were being asked to go out of town and share our story at IMF support groups mostly, which we're happy to do. 
And my nurse said, stop in before you go on your next trip. You don't look right. So I did. And she drew the blood, came back and said, you're not right. Your platelets are dangerously low. You're not going anywhere, except you're going to get another bone marrow biopsy. And I pleaded with her. I said, do you know how many bone marrow biopsies I've had so far? I was up to around 30. I said, are you sure you need another one? Because we all know who've been through them. They're not pleasant things to do. And she said, oh, yeah, Jim, we're very sure. They drew the, the marrow, got a call from the doctor. A couple of days later, I'm at home. Kathleen's with me, and the doctor says, bad news, Jim. You have leukemia, and worse news is treatment-related leukemia, which means to you the only way you can stay alive is yet another aloe transplant. And this one cannot be from your sister for the oddball reason that my bone marrow thinks I am my sister. So he said, this is going to be tough, and we're not sure we can find a match on the bone marrow matching database. So you probably want to think about this. You're 64. You've been through a lot. There's no guarantee any of this is going to work or you'll survive it. Give it some thought and call me back. I said, no, no, don't need to. I'm in. I said, we'll be down in the morning. That happened to be a wedding anniversary night in September. So we went out and did the best we could at celebrating a wedding anniversary. Next morning got started. And that transplant was by far and away harder than the other three combined. 75 consecutive days in the hospital, the transplant floor, some of those very rough days. What helped get me through that was I got a phone call one Sunday night when things were really bleak. And it was Paul Richardson, my Dana-Farber Velcade doctor. And he said, Jim, we've got other patients that have gotten secondary cancer, leukemia from situations like yours, and they've made it through. And you can do the same thing, and you will do the same thing. Well, he had said the same thing in a call to Kathleen earlier. That made me feel wonderful. It really pumped me up. So I'm so grateful for the people that run Be The Match and the National Bone Marrow Link. Because without them having the names on that list, my doctor would have never found a match. But the interesting thing is, when he found the match, and I said to him, that's great news, when do we do the transplant? And he said, well, we're not sure we can do it. And I said, what do you mean? (laughs) He said, I'm going to die if you don't. He said, that's right, you'll die if you don't get a transplant. He said, but Jim, we can't be the reason that you die. We can't kill you with a transplant. And we've got doctors on our approval board who are saying they don't think you can live through this this fourth transplant, given everything about you. And I said, well, do do a favor for me, will you? Go explain to those dissenting doctors that um, two months ago I rode my bike 328 miles, four days, and see if that influences their decision. It did. He came back and said, we're willing to do it. So by Christmas... I was pronounced in remission, sent back home in remission from leukemia, and I remained in remission on myeloma the whole time. That's where I remain today. That's amazing. You have endured so much, truly, like James Bond, keep coming back, get, making making your way through it. What are some insights that you have for other patients? I know we've already mentioned exercise to continue when times get so difficult like this. That's a great question. And what I mean by exercise, because some may be thinking, how does Jim say exercise daily when 
when he, he's, he's already told us he's been through four transplants. Okay, you're right. When I'm lying in a hospital bed, flat on my back from, from the medications, it's all I can do to make myself sit up in bed. But here's the important part. I do that. I push myself to sit up in bed as long as I can. And then I push myself to get those feet on the floor and hold on to the bed for dear life as long as I can. And then when I'm comfortable with that, I grab the IV pole and I walk around the transplant floor until the nurses are so tired of bumping into me, they bring me a, a treadmill outside my, my room. So I think the phrase sit, stand, walk, that really explains what I mean by daily exercise. Mm -hmm. Now, there are times in those 12 years when I rode the four-day, 300-plus Pan Ohio Hope Ride, there are days when I'm exercising a lot in the training or in the ride itself. I mean, really, really demanding exercise. But there are other days where the best I can do is something much lighter. But that's okay. I think my goal is just to do as whatever level I'm at is just to push myself and do something that keeps me moving around. My sister-in-law likes to say, oh, you mean on your feet, not your seat. I said, yes, Marianne, that's what I mean. On, on my feet, not my seat. So some level of training, but beyond exercise, we do have some, some other approaches that, that we think have made a difference. We keep making our plans, our family or personal plans. We don't let the fact that Jim's got cancer get in the way. Okay, if, if, if something comes up because of cancer, so be it. But we kind of learned that. One day I was coming home from work early on after my first transplant. I was in remission. I was doing great, but Kathleen's nerves were shot because there was nothing for me to do. No maintenance was being done in those days. And she didn't know what to do with herself until a pink Buick ran a red light and bashed into the side of my car damaged the car, but not me. And when I called Kathleen to tell her that I had to go down to the police station report this lady report this accident, she was ballistic, angry at me. And I thought, well, just let her go. But she finally caught herself and realized, hey, it's not Jim's fault. Somebody ran a red light. But it really, it sunk home for Kathleen that, look, any of us can get taken out at any moment doesn't have to be cancer. It can be anything. So that helped her to kind of regain her footing and helped, made it easier for her to agree that, yeah, we can plan on doing this, that, or the other thing because we don't let this one risk get in our way. There are lots of other ones out there. Another approach that we find very helpful is something that we call the 8 p.m. rule. And what we mean by the 8 p.m. rule is at 8 o'clock at night, all cancer talk stops, whether it's from a phone call or between us, mostly between us, we stop because our reasoning is we need some time to unwind and relax and just whatever before before it's time to go to sleep. Now, to be truthful with you, it used to be a nine o'clock rule, <laughs> but we're that much older now. It's eight o'clock. And if it ever gets to the seven o'clock rule, we're going to keep quiet about it. <laughs> But another approach that we find very useful is trying our darndest to strike up a partnership with the doctor and the nurse, the doctors and the nurses treating me. Uh, we've been largely successful with that. There are a couple exceptions, but by partnering, I don't mean trying to 
trying to boss them around. That's not going to happen. I wouldn't want it if if they would let me because they know so much more about medicine than I'll ever know. But I know an awful lot about our case. And Kathleen has done a ton of research, and she knows a lot. And she knows she's got a lot of notes along with mine on, on my case. So we think a partnership makes a lot of sense. All I want is to have a say in decisions. It's, it's, it's worked out well. It sometimes causes some work on my part to get two doctors to work with one another. But one's out of town and one's in town, but it's all been doable for us. We think sharing our story has been very helpful for us. And I've got to take my hat off again to the IMF for being the enabler for that. There's there's no organization even close to having the reach and the, and the compassion to uh, invite someone like some people like Kathleen and, and myself to share our story. That, that's been very helpful for us. We stay informed, and again, the IMF is on the leading edge of helping us do that. And Kathleen does the, the research and, the, and all that. I, I try to stay focused on the, what I look at as the patient side. There have been adverse effects, and I, I wish there was something I could do to, to help the approach there, but there isn't much. And I did develop Kraft-versus-host disease from the uh, transplant, the, the leukemia transplant, and that was from a German woman, a woman living in Germany. It affected my eyesight very uh, much. I couldn't drive my car. My eyes were were closing down about noon, and I couldn't find an answer. We couldn't find an answer anywhere here in town. But with research, the help of others, we found a place out of town, and I'm wearing these devices that return my huge contacts that I fill with liquid every morning, take out every night, that return my sight to normal. If you look at me, you'd say, well, yeah, he was never an athlete because I'm three inches shorter. My back is twisted. My one shoulder is not working because the bones are destroyed from when the myeloma was active. I had a hip replaced because of avascular necrosis, which you might find this interesting. I was told that by the surgeon doing the hip replacement that his experience is that cancer patients who have to take long steroids over a long period of time are at higher risk for avascular necrosis. And he said, no, it doesn't mean your other hip's going to go. And so far it has not. But he said, that's just something that, that you got to put up with as a person who has to take steroids. Well, that influenced me. And whenever I have a chance of a drug combination when the myeloma was active, I would ask if it's possible at all to try it without the steroid and see how it goes. That had some effect, some positive effects. My thyroid blew out, got shingles after the first two transplants. Skin cancer, I'm at high risk for skin cancer. My dermatologist group at the same hospital says, well, Jim, that's because your immune system is different after a transplant. And so I go in and get my skin checked every four months, whether I have a spot or not, and they always find something. They've been able to control that though, but I didn't know that. And that's something for us that have gone through transplants might want to keep in mind. Some hear our story and they say, oh, Jim, you're just lucky. <laughs> and I say, yeah, I'm very lucky, lucky in so many ways. But I will also say this about luck. And I took it from a golf instructor no longer with us who told his 
collegiate golfers when you're facing a long, long putt across a very undulating green. Of course, the golfer's lucky if it goes in in one stroke. But the key is you've got to hit that ball hard enough to get it at least to the hole and thereby give luck a chance to happen. And we believe that's what we've done. We've done everything in our control to give luck a chance to happen. And I further believe that by listening to a podcast like this and staying informed by looking at the IMF material, I think you are also giving yourself a better chance for luck to happen. I really would add this, that you can contact me at jim.bond48 at gmail.com. And thanks to the help of the IMF, I get emails from all over the world, and that includes the Middle East, New Zealand, England, Canada, Latin America. And we have been to 40 of the 50 U.S. states, either virtually or in person. So the IMF has played a huge role, and it's for that reason that I I dedicated any profit on the book that I wrote this spring to the IMF and other charities, because I'm absolutely grateful for all the IMF has done for us. And if you have any interest in that book, I can get you information on it. It's the only book I've read never written, though, so it would be pretty easy to find on Amazon. But I really appreciate the uh, the opportunity to tell our story. I hope I made it clear that none of this would have happened without Kathleen, because I'm so blessed to have her as a caregiver, because she has, she has done so many leading-edge things that the doctors agreed with and got implemented and helped, helped my case, so... Thank you so much to the IMF for, for giving me this opportunity. Well, thank you so much, Jim, for sharing your story. It is truly a story of endurance and resilience, and I'm sure it's going to be an inspiration to so many other patients who may be facing the same news that you had where you were told to go to hospice or so many different situations where they thought they were out of options and you continue to advocate for yourself. And I think that message is going to be very important to our listeners. And again, if you want to reach Jim, he's available at Jim, J-I-M dot bond, B-O-N-D 48 at gmail.com. You've been listening to A Day in the Life podcast brought to you by the International Myeloma Foundation. To learn more about the IMF or myeloma, visit us at myeloma.org.